0: We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Welcome to another Water Cooler Conversation from the Menzies Research Centre. I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre, and I'm delighted today to welcome back a former colleague, our former communications director, Fred Paul, this time in his role as a distinguished biographer, as the author of an important book, Die Laughing, the biography of Bill Leak. Fred, welcome.
1: G'day, Nick. Good to be back, mate. Great to be back.
0: Fred, the main business today, of course, is to draw upon the insights of your biography of Bill Leek, Die Laughing. First, however, though, I want to take you back, if I may, to July 2018, when you and I sat in front of a couple of microphones to pioneer the water cooler podcast. Just have a listen to this. Welcome to the water cooler podcast, where we talk about some of the topics and issues that have been exercising our minds this week at the Menzies Research Centre. I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director. And with me is Fred Paul. Welcome, Fred. G'day, mate. Plastic seemed to cause a bit of a fuss this week, but I wrote a column about <laughs> it in the, in the Australian. It's,
1: it's a never-ending topic, is it? I think this goes back to uh, the Great Pacific garbage patch from a few years ago. Back in 2015, The Guardian reported that there was this... Oh, <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the garbage oh, patch freak. you can see from space. Yeah, That's
0: yeah. it. That's it. That's it. Podcast number one, Fred, uh, was all all about the encroachment of the nanny state, uh, specifically the pr- proposal for a sugar tax, if you recall, yep. uh, which we defeated. It was great. We saw that one yep. off. Uh, but fast forward to podcast uh, 69, as this one is. Uh, and uh, I have to wonder what's going on around us right now, whether we... We might have won the battle but lost the war against the nanny state. What do you think?
1: Mate, the nanny state is on every street corner of Australia right now. It's actually in our houses and in our workplaces. Yeah, I think we are definitely winning, not not winning this war by a long shot. And uh, it's it's interesting that we are talking about Bill tonight because, uh, you know, hardly a day goes by when I don't think how Bill would respond to uh, what uh, Australia has become. It's a... it's you know, of all the people I've ever met, of all the Australians I've ever known, nobody loved Australia more than Bill did. And his, his faith in Australia's potential to become a beacon of, you know, without sounding too serious, of, of liberty and, and happiness and prosperity, you know, he, he thought Australia was the best country in the world and, and the way it is right now, he would, uh, he would, be, he would despair to see how it's become.
0: Fred, I I I seem to recall that you know, even as we were recording that podcast more than three years ago, you'd already started to think and work on the book, the biography of Bill, Bill's life. Um, I remember I was very courage encouraging you to do it. Somebody had to do it, and I could think of no better person to do it. But it's an astonishing book, I think. Um, Bill's first first of all, naturally, the most most naturally talented person I think I've ever had the pleasure to be acquainted with and, and I guess you too. Uh, it, he had a larger than life story so that immediately lends itself to a great biography. It's expertly told of course through the eyes of a journalist uh, who not only understands the imperative to get the truth right but uh, also can write well which doesn't always go with the past <laughs> as you know. Um, And most of all I think, uh, just to round it off, uh, it's an important book because it's a parable for our censorious times. Uh, I remember when we discussed this book um, and I was saying you should write it, I I, I felt that it was a big burden on you, Fred, uh, because number one, you you had a big life to pack into one volume. uh, And you had a lot of work ahead to try and unravel the complications, what was true and what was not true. But more than that, I think you, like I, uh, felt a tremendous sense of loss and pain. And I think it must have been very hard for you over that period to be immersed in Bill's life and, and thinking about that tragic end daily. How, how was that? How was it personally for you working through this book?
1: Oh, mate, that's, that's a very good question and a good place to start. At first, it was actually very difficult um, you know, I mean, I still miss him. Um, at first, you know, thinking being forced to think about Bill every day was was not easy because you know I, I missed him a lot. And then I, I kind of got into this habit of actually just having imaginary conversations with him. And so when I was, you know, uh, considering parts of the book to write, or even, Formulating sentences, or you know, wondering who to interview—all sorts of stuff. You know, I just think, you know, well, what would Bill say about this? What would Bill think about this? And actually, early on, I actually wrote a couple of passages, and I, and I thought, oh, that's a pretty good passage. I've got that right. You know, all the facts are straight, and it's in all all in order. And, and then I'd read it back and go, actually, Bill would say that sucked. <laughs> so out it went. <laughs> and, uh, and so I kind of got over that. I, you know, I don't want to sound too nostalgic or maudlin about it, you know, because um, Bill, would, uh, Bill would, um, would not approve of that either. Um, eventually, it didn't take me too long, it actually became quite a, um, I became quite objective about it and uh, pursuing his story became just this mission that I was on. And another thing that I discovered early on, Nick, and you probably think about this yourself these days, is when I was discovering things about Bill that I didn't know, I, was, I, I used to, I, I would think, oh, geez, I wish Bill was still here because we could talk about this, you know? Bill's company was so amazing and so energetic and so um, sort of larrikin that, you know, you'd always get caught up in just drinking together and cracking jokes.
0: So, Fred, let's get down to the, the, the dichotomy, the great central dichotomy of Bill Leake. Uh, he was an accomplished painter. He could have been a great artist. He was a great artist, but he was a, a newspaper cartoonist as well. Uh, he was a, a, a knockabout a, a knock guy, a larrikin, but he was a true intellectual, uh, an intellectual, the best kind of an intellectual in Australia, those who try and keep their intellectualism from showing too much. Let me quote a few lines from your book to set this up. You write, Bill discovered that it was possible to be both a tough rat bag and sensitive enough to play Chopin and love great art. But he also discovered the prudence of only revealing one side of himself at a time. Earnest and charming with adults, a rebel in the schoolyard. The former earned him praise, the latter avoided getting into scraps. Uh, but as you go on to show you know by the time he got was in his late 40s he, he became tired of pretending to be one bill or the other uh, he became bill Leake, uh, a man who as you write quote was willfully even profoundly egalitarian the only thing he couldn't stand were fools
1: one, one of the curious things about bill was how the the, the working class persona that he exuded, but Nick, he wasn't actually all that working class. He came from a very solid middle class family. His dad wasn't a working class person. I mean, they had working class characteristics. They loved to drink. They were larricans. They loved to laugh, and they were very egalitarian people. But you know, they weren't ditch diggers. They they were well off. And he Bill was brought up in a family that uh, revered music and revered uh, intellectual pursuits, you know, literature was, was prominent in the family, you know, and Bill read a lot as a young man. So it's fair to say that Bill's sort of working class persona was um, actually put on a little bit. And you can trace that to Bill's love of Australia, because Australia is, Australia reveres the working class knockabout sort of bloke. And so Bill became one essentially, while, as you say, retaining this love for, for beauty and for art and, and great literature. The thing about Bill is that he could talk about great art in any company and make it quite accessible. You know, people have approached me and said, you know, I, I, I learnt more about art in half an hour with Bill than I did in some of the great um, museums of Europe. So, you know, Bill had this ability to cross from one, uh, one demographic to another. The, the more amusing side of that is that he could crack incredibly lewd jokes in polite <laughs> company. And he had a really good uh, method of doing that. Like if he found, he found himself in a, in, a, in a group of people, a circle of people, and he wanted to crack a really lewd joke, he'd reach out and he'd actually just touch the forearm of the, the the most prudish person in that group, as if to say, it's okay. I'm about to say something really bawdy, but you'll be okay. And everyone would get the joke that way. So Bill could transgress or or, or cross these sort of social borders. And as you say, he, he 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 reached an age where he got sick of pretending to be one thing or another, and he just became Bill Leake. There was no one like him.
0: Yeah, when I said he was the most naturally talented person I've ever met, that, that's that's no exaggeration. Um, he had it all, didn't he? He could. Um, he was very funny, and and that's that's actually a, a good thing in a cartoonist. Uh, yeah. All cartoonists <laughs> have it, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, it's funny you should you should mention his uh, his sense of humour because w- I talked at length with his very close friend and fellow cartoonist Warren Brown about this and Warren has some very uh serious insights into Bill's sense of humor and he's quite uh adamant that Bill learned to be funny bill was an extremely funny man but it it didn't come naturally to to bill and warren explains it very well in the book that um that Bill acquired this this sense of humor and worked on it. He he, he makes this analogy: if you want to be rich, you, ha- you hang around rich people. And in Bill's case, if you want to be funny, you hang around funny people. And Bill did, you know, all his friends were funny, you know. So, uh, you know, Bill acquired his sense of humor, which, um, you know, to his credit, he became the you know the greatest cartoon that ast- cartoonist that Australia's ever known. So, you know, he was very good at it.
0: Yeah, and he he did he did he did work hard at it. Um, he worked hard from the moment he woke up, to the moment he finally filed that cartoon, didn't he? And uh, he had a habit of ringing people uh, for ideas and workshopping and bouncing things off them and picking things up, which he keep in that book he called Rough as Guts, uh, yes. which you you have access to, of course, for this, which must have been a great source. Uh, But he did, he certainly worked hard at that, but also at his artistic skill, didn't he? Those cartoons can sometimes look effortless, but when you look into them, into the detail, in the artistic techniques that he used to express, say, uh, anger or energy by putting a, a, a person's line at 45 degrees, all those little tricks which he... He divulged to me one by one like a conjurer telling me how things were done. Only a they great weren't art- effortless, were they?
1: Only a great artist could could depict body language the way Bill did. There's no cartoonist I know of anywhere in the world who understood body language the way Bill did. The first time I ever saw him do a cartoon was in his little office in The Australian back in the mid-'90s. And he wanted to draw someone, he was drawing some you know, idiot, some politician or power broker. And he wanted to get the hand gesture just right. And what he did, he, he did, lo- he went like this, he went, and he looked at his hand and went, and he moved his fingers a little bit and went, right, that's it. And he got the, he then he wrote, he drew those fingers down. Hands are actually very expressive things. You know, there's even great mm. artists who don't even get that, you know, um, but body language in particular he was extremely good at. One of my favorite cartoons is of Gough Whitlam um arriving in heaven and, and God is on his throne and uh and he sees Gough arrive and he goes, Oh my god And Goff goes, please call me Gough. And <laughs> and Goff's gesture is just beautiful because he's it's not as if he's walked there. He's He's got both his legs are together and he's bowing forward as if he's as if God is is ready to receive him. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful body language, but also Goff is reaching out his hand and God, and God is reaching out to touch it, and it's the hands almost touching between Adam and God from the Sistine Chapel, if you look closely enough. So. You're right. Bill embedded jokes into his cartoons that sometimes you wouldn't see until, you know, half an hour or a day or a week or months later. You know, I reckon there were jokes in Bill's cartoons that not even he knew he was drawing in the body Mm. language and in the gestures and in the expressions. He was so good at it.
0: Mm. And he'd he'd draw people in quite... um Unexpected guises, didn't he? I mean, he had the way he'd pick a character, and um, Kevin Rudd as Tintin, for instance, uh, and just hammer that home day after day. And one of his later, uh, in his later cartoons, Bill Shorten as the glove puppet <laughs> on, on the on the fist of the union leader. Uh, one of which he, I have the original sitting here on my wall in the office. Is a beautiful way of doing it uh and then doing that day after day after day until people uh you know the the joke became more and more funny
1: well the jokes became jokes of their in their own right you know so bill loved boxing rings for example so a lot of jokes were a lot of his gags were set in boxing rings but for example you know his most famous cartoon yeah righto what's his name then that line became the standard line in a bunch of subsequent cartoons. So, mm. you know, he w- he was actually creating his own jokes that would live on, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, he was... Um, and also, when he mixed those characters together, when, when he depicted uh, John Howard as Mother Teresa or... Um, <laughs> uh, Laurel and Hardy, uh, you know uh, who was it? Um, Howard and um, Costello as uh, Laurel and Hardy, and so on. It, his his depth of knowledge of popular culture and of classical art was so ex- so um, broad that he was able to uh, mash up characters in the most unexpected ways, and um, it created mm. enormous comic potential because some of these mashups were were, were just so unlikely that they were absurd and they were funny in their own right
0: let's in order to set up what, what we'll come to later which is bill's uh, epiphany if you like in politics if it was that let's set up where he was during the howard years he was uh, with a group called the primates uh, who'd have long lunches they considered themselves intellectuals um uh, and and they were indeed but some of the behavior of course <laughs> you can read about in the book is is hilarious but yeah. but uh, in in the context of today's safety first world is uh, is uh, is uh, <laughs> uh, somewhat somewhat unusual but look the politics of that day he was uh, every, every to every appearance profoundly anti john howard i remember even in john howard's later days As Prime Minister, I remember him ringing me one Saturday, or Friday it was, about Saturday's paper. He'd ring me and run through the cartoon just to make sure it passed muster. And he said, uh, well, Nick, uh, this is how it's going to look. I've got John Howard standing on the table in his underpants. (laughs) And uh, I said, draw it, Bill. He said, you don't want to know what the gag is? I said, you just told me. (laughs) Yeah. But that was Bill, right? So... um, just, just tell me first about his relationship with John Howard, and and uh, indeed, it almost almost close to what you might call a diplomatic incident over that, wasn't there?
1: Mate, John, his relationship with John Howard is one of the great arcs of the book. There was an instance when John Howard have ended Bill's career, according to someone very senior at the Australian. Uh, he, Bill drew a cartoon that was um, that was. Deeply offensive. Um, It wasn't intended for the uh, for the newspaper, Um, and he was in Canberra at the time. And he was so proud of it uh, that he photocopied it and uh, sent it to a whole bunch of people around Canberra. And it just got uh, it went viral. The word is that's the word we use these days, but uh, in those days it went viral via photocopiers and fax machines. And uh, eventually, it landed on John Howard's desk and could have been, it involved you know, John Howard and another world political leader, and uh, it could have got Bill in a lot of trouble if Howard had been so inclined, and Howard wasn't. Uh, and Dennis Shanahan, the, uh, politi- the, um, bo- the uh, boss of the um, Canberra Bureau of the Australian, he was, it was his job to clean up this mess and uh, he did it very effectively. And, um, and, but but he explained to me that Howard wasn't the type of politician to um, choose the option of ruining a journalist's career, no matter how egregiously he'd been offended. Uh, so to Howard's credit, he, you know, he, he didn't do anything, uh, didn't take any uh, serious action against Bill. Um, and, of course, later on, Bill and he had quite a significant friendship. Um, so mm-hmm. it's one of the great stories of the, of the book that Bill was so vehemently and uh, viscerally opposed to the Howard government and then eventually came round to um, seeing the world through, very much through, John Howard's eyes.
0: Yeah, well, let's talk about the various theories as to why that was um in a moment, but first, uh, it's a very revealing book. You don't, you don't spare uh, Bill, uh, Bill, and his failings at all. In fact, y- you know, you, you 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 portray them as a very important part of what he, he was. Of course, his his alcoholism, um, his uh, his his love life, his varied live life, all those things seem to be part of that character. I think one of the bravest people uh, who helped you contributed to you uh, in writing this book was Jan Rickman's who was Jan was uh, um, I suppose it's fair to say the love of his life in a way the unrequited love of his life and she's very very frank about their relationship uh, and she does it because she told you I think that it was it was very important to understand these failings in bill uh, it, I just quote a little bit of what she said he was very vulnerable behind closed doors he was trying to create a persona of toughness and create a narrative that he grew up in this very rough environment but what I really saw was a dichotomy of two profoundly different men there was a lot of fear within Bill I think it was insecurity he wanted so much to be accepted and that really surprised me because he was the most naturally brilliant man I knew that's that's right isn't it Fred I mean, it was it was a side which i think you 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 no doubt saw and and i saw glimpses of uh, but very different from the public side of bill that that um, insecurity that desire to be wanted
1: yeah and i don't want to contradict the point we both agreed on earlier that there were that there was a hidden side of bill i i don't think that I mean, Jean says that she saw the the sensitive side of him, but but so did you and I. You know, I mean, there was a deep need in Bill to be liked. He had he had a great gift for friendship, but I think it came from a need to be liked, and um, and that was one of the driving forces of his life. So, you know, I admire I admire Jean enormously for how candid she was in that chapter. And she does indeed reveal an enormous amount. I mean, if anything from that chapter, you, you understand just how sensitive Bill was. Uh, the rest of the book does kind of testify to that. But with Jean, he really was. And the, the tragedy of their relationship was that he he couldn't control his alcoholism at the time, and she had to she had to ditch him because it was he was just too volatile, and uh, you know they continued to um, be friends for long afterwards, and I think they both understood that they'd let a, a very good opportunity um, slip by, or Bill had let a very good opportunity slip by. Um, so, yeah, Jean's candor uh, is, is essential to the book. Um, but Bill did find love later in life with Mm. Gung, and it doesn't, this doesn't diminish the love he had for Astrid either, which I find is a, that's a really charming love story too. He was so young. He was living in a foreign country, living in Germany, barely spoke the language and fell absolutely head over heels with a woman who had been an orphan. I mean, it, you know, there's a there's a beautiful love story in that as well. And then, of course, with with Gung at the end of his life, where they formed just the most um, the, a deep and loving and practical partnership. You know, that's what that, that's what what was enormously valuable to Bill at the, at the end. They, they they were such a good couple because she was yeah. such a good cook, and he was a he was the uh, the rack to a host. And um, as you know, you know. Um, visiting Bill's place in the last couple of years was uh, was quite an event.
0: It was, yeah. Mm. Let's go into that tempestuous last decade or so of his life, which begins, uh, I think, is punctuated, I guess, uh, with another uh, drunken accident. Um, his most spectacular, when he falls off a balcony uh, and um, uh, incurs head damage and uh, is airlifted to hospital and uh, from John Singleton's house and very nearly died Um, it was a it was a very trying and testing moment for Bill of course but also for his friends Mm. Uh, but he recovered which I thought was remarkable it seemed to me that a man who'd sustained uh, potential brain damage like that wasn't going to be able to come out as multi dexterous as he went in you know he'd lose one of his skills It might be writing it might be speaking it might be drawing it might be music who knows? Mm. But he he came out pretty intact, didn't he? I think he lost a, a bit of his sense of taste. But it was a turning point for him. Um, and, of course, uh, this goes to the question of uh, why he changed his politics. Um, and uh, this is something that, that uh, his friends on the left said it was the knock to the head. They always want to portray yeah. conservatism as uh, some kind of mental illness. But I will quote from Bill himself, who you quote, which I think really sums it up. So the falls in late November 2007. Bill writes in 2012. Sorry, 2008 was it? Yeah. So in in 2012, four years later, right, he writes, so what was it that turned me into a right-wing shrill? Kevin bloody Rudd had won the election and me, I turned into a fascist overnight. Uh, That that seems to be the most um, satisfying...
1: Within days, he had produced a cartoon committing the same crime that those French cartoonists had been killed for, and that is a depiction of the Prophet Muhammad. And uh, to its eternal credit, The Australian um, published it. Then Mm -hmm. Bill found himself uh, the subject of chatter online uh, among people who who were identified by the Australian Federal Police as well-connected within uh, Islamic um, militant Islam circles and radical jihadis. And the advice was he had to move house. One of the main reasons for that was that Bill's house at the time, which he owned up on the central coast, was opposite uh, Brisbane Water, a tidal flat on Brisbane Water, which is the estuary up that way. And the federal police speculated that it would be easy to turn up in a boat Uh, loaded with ammunitions and explosives, uh, do whatever jihadis would uh, wish to do to Bill and his family and escape by boat um, before anyone knew what had happened. So uh, not only was it advisable for him to find a more secret location, but also one (laughs) away from the water, which is what he did. But, you know, he and Gung, uh, you know, didn't hesitate. Um, he, he, he consulted Gung over this, and she was uh, support. She unconditionally and unhesitatingly supported his uh, his intentions on in this issue. And she's not unfamiliar with this topic, as you know, Nick. She grew up in southern Thailand, um, and in in the primary school that she attended as a child, she was one of the few Buddhists in the school. She was surrounded by um, by um, Thai Muslims, so she knows she knows what uh the Muslim religion can be like when uh, when radical Islamics are offended um, and uh, she didn't hesitate she was just like Bill
0: it was a huge disruption wasn't it he had you know his house had to be basically fitted out as a fortress he had doors that were made bulletproof Uh, he had alarms that were connected to some headquarters somewhere Um, and I remember him joking with me that he'd gone and got a gun it wasn't until I read your book that I realized he actually did he
1: did and he actually he he answered the door with it in his pocket once as well (laughs) so yeah he he Bill being Bill he had uh, he had connections um, uh, in uh, circles where procuring a, a a firearm illegally was uh, was quite possible, and so he did so. It was only a low caliber revolver, and uh, he was a- actually able to practice a few shots in his front yard without al- raising the alarm because it, you know, the noise it made didn't sound like a um, you know an M sixteen. So. Uh, yeah, he got a gun. Uh, he had, you know, dumbbells um, in his office in case he needed them in, in the case of an attack, and he had a room in his house that he could retreat to, uh, which had a, a, a really strong door and was especially reinforced. So the the threats were n- were taken extremely seriously, and um, especially by Bill. I think it messed him up a bit too. You know, you probably remember Nick. I mean, this this would mess with you um, for a while. It made him, it made him. Uh, I, I would. I think paranoid is a is too strong a word, but it did make him feel a bit besieged, and mm. he started to see. Uh, his friendships along the same line you know if you if you were in any if you if he felt that you were in any doubt about where he was heading then he he didn't value your friendship as much anymore mm. i think mm. um, you know luckily you and i were were more politically aligned with him, and so our friendships survived but you know there were times during this period when he had to reassess some of his friendships because it, his life was under threat. So, you know, naturally, mm. it would mess with mm. your mind, mess with your head a bit.
0: Well, I mean, that that what you've just described—it's it's what happened to Salman Rushdie. It's what's happened to others. Mm. Um, and it, it, it you you shudder to think how you'd res, you and I would respond in that situation right it's one of the most horrible things you can imagine yeah. happening to you but yeah. it's important to put to, to put that on the record to think about that before we move on to the next episode which is running with the uh, tim soup pomesan and Gillian triggs at the human rights and equal opportunity commission or human rights commission yeah um because well, you know you'd think on the surface well you know a brush with a Human Rights Commission is not going to be anywhere as bad as 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 you know, have your life threatened by by Muslims, but Muslim terrorists, I should say. But uh, I think he it was worse for him in many ways and and horrible. Um, is it? Did you get that sense that he he saw that as as a more intense form of punishment? Still,
1: absolutely, absolutely, like w- without a doubt. I mean if the threat from from radical Muslims had disturbed him because he had to move house and they had misunderstood his cartoon, that's one thing. But for the Human Rights Commission and various other, you know, woke, um, censorious um, scolds around the country, especially on Twitter, for them to accuse him of racism was far worse because, as you know, mate, you know, Bill was the least racist. Sorry. Um, yeah, Bill,
0: I certainly Bill never was, knew Bill anybody. Bill was the least.
1: Sorry. You know, I, this happens to me occasionally, mate. I'm sorry about that. Um, Bill was the least racist person you could possibly imagine. He was so egalitarian. Uh, you know, which goes back to his his deep love of Australia, which is you know one of the founding one not one of the founding principles, but one of the fundamental principles of Australia is egalitarianism. And Bill took that to heart. It was one of his guiding principles in life. He treated every person equally, whether they were the Prime Minister of Australia or the the, the taxi driver who picked him up from a pub. He was profoundly egalitarian. And for him to be described as racist would have uh, w- would have um, disturbed him to his core. And so that battle, which it went did go on for quite some time, you know, it wasn't quite as long as a year, but it was a, it was a very bitter battle, and it it had barely been resolved when he died. Yeah, that disturbed so, him.
0: Yeah. So that, the, the the famous cartoon, um, uh, I think most people will be familiar with it if you're not then it's another good reason to buy fred's book and 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 familiarize yourself with it again Uh, but it was essentially a a cartoon that was drawing attention to the the tragedy of um of uh, life for many aboriginal children um it was a plea for pity for them rather than anything else and yet it was deemed to be racist. But you set that up very well, I think, Fred, in the book by going back to an earlier cartoon, what, more than 10 years before. Describe that cartoon to me, which didn't, of course, have the same reaction.
1: Oh, so this is the, uh, the cartoon of the Aboriginal uh, woman being bashed by an Aboriginal man. Um, she's slumped on the ground, um, leaning against a tree, and he's about to... Uh, She's got a black eye. He's about to bash her, and uh, bash her again, I should say. And it was a depiction of a situation uh, that was that that had just been revealed uh, in some Aboriginal community, which Warren Mundine had been talking about. And uh, and and he said Warren Mundine, who's a leading Aboriginal advocate um, in Australia. He'd said that the problem with most politics regarding Aboriginal issues is that they're too touchy feely, and the man in the cartoon is bearing down on this poor benighted woman and says, "You want touchy feely? I'll give you touchy feely." And obviously, it's uh, you know, Mm. the the touching is uh, the touchy feely is, is of a violent nature. Now, Bill. I mean, Bill's cartoon of that was, you know, there's not nothing particularly funny about that. It was a dramatic uh, illustration of what was happening and what Warren Mundine was talking about. But this is this kind of precedes the the uh, proliferation of social media, and so it, it it he kind of got away with it. Really, it was a it was an accurate depiction of a a really horrible situation that was happening in Aboriginal communities. And because it wasn't able to be shared so quickly on social media, it didn't generate the same storm that uh, Bill did some years later in 2016, when he did something similar. The victim in in, in that situation was an Aboriginal child. In the subsequent cartoon in 2016, the victim was an Aboriginal child. And there's an Aboriginal dad involved and an Aboriginal cop. the The deliberate misreading on social media in that instance was that Bill had uh, criticized all Aboriginal men as being hopeless dads. That's and to read that cartoon that way is just simply absurd. It's either mm. to read it that way, you're either an idiot, or you are deliberately misreading it. Uh, either way, I don't care. I don't care what it is. You're either it's uh, it's still wrong. Yeah. Um, so Bill, so you know, and Bill Bill copped it as a result. Uh, you know, there's probably you know, until then the probably the most famous cartoon in Australian history would be Stan Cross's. Um, uh, For God's sake, stop laughing. This is serious. Uh, which was, you know, which was drawn probably 80, 90 years earlier. Bill's cartoon of, yeah, righto, what's his name then, has far surpassed that as the most famous cartoon in Australian history. Now, unfortunately, for all the wrong reasons, but hopefully in the long term, it will continue to draw attention to the uh, horrible circumstances in which children grow up in Aboriginal, um, in Aboriginal communities. And hopefully, one day lead to um, better conditions for those kids, because uh, at the moment those kids have nothing to hope for, they have nothing. Their, their parents don't have jobs, they don't have schools to go to, they suffer from malnutrition, some of them have sexually transmitted diseases before they've even they're even old enough to go to school. I mean, this is seriously hellhole situation that Bill was trying to draw attention to and he copped grief for it. And it's just wrong. You
0: know, it's an indication of how fast things are spiraling out of control on the left that, I mean, back then that cartoon, what, through 2000, Six you tell years. me, five years ago? Uh, yes. We, it, it, was, it was clearly what we'd now call, you know, an example of cancel culture uh, but at the time, I don't think we used that expression. It wasn't something that was familiar. It hadn't yet form, formed a word to s- describe it. We knew they were censorious. We knew they were liberal. But it's it, by any measure, uh, uh, it become much stronger now and a much bigger force to be reckoned with. Uh, in your conversations with Bill... Uh, what does he think of this? Does is he astounded? Is he horrified?
1: Yeah, he is. He is the. Um, it's funny you should call it cancel culture because in Bill's day, when he was still in li- still alive, he was just simply called politically incorrect, mm. uh, and you know I think the term identity politics was just was just beginning to emerge around then, so Bill was bewildered by the fact that. He he was being vilified uh, for that. He despaired, mate. He really did. I mean, I remember getting a couple of emails from him where he despaired at the way people were denigrating the truth. You know, there's this. Along with cancel culture, there is this emerging uh, idea that truth is relative or truth is personal. Bill just thought that was absolute bullshit. The truth is is uh, is immutable. the The truth cannot be uh, um, c- cannot be disputed. Sorry, it took me a while to get to that word. The <laughs> truth cannot be disputed. And to him, it was as clear as day. You know, that's another thing about Australian culture that he adored so much is that, we are we are generally pretty blunt people. If mm. you know if if you're talking bullshit, you'll know. In the presence of genuine Australians, you'll soon find out that what you're talking is a load of crap. And Bill grew up believing that that was actually a virtue, and then suddenly late in life he found himself surrounded by people who not only didn't recognize the truth when they saw it, but Actually, spouted bullshit and believed it. So you know, they were difficult times for Bill, and he saw in it. Uh, getting back to the emails that I remember him sending me back in the day, he saw in it the very demise of civilization. Um, mm. You know, he he didn't think that civilizations could survive if there wasn't a, 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 a widespread you, you don't have to. You, you don't have to know what the truth is, but you have to accept that we are all looking for it. And when we, when as a culture, in in some ways, we stopped looking for it, Bill just
0: saw red lights flashing all over the place. Bill, when I, uh, well, Fred, Fred, when I when I read your book, I started towards the end. Uh, those were the bits that I I wanted to read about first. The bits that we lived with, through with him in those final years um, and I, 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 I thought this is a very painful book. I don't know whether I can, can get through the whole book because of course not only does it we've got personal memories of Bill but you know what the issues that it's thrown up are not trivial um, mm. as regards the future. But I, I, I want to just go back to and read it backwards, if you like, as I, as I did. Yeah. And go back to the earlier sections in the book where you just get this great character of a man who's so full of life, so full of enthusiasm, creativity, just determined to see off whatever obstacles come his way. That, to me, is the redemptive part in the book. You know, we like redemptive endings. You've got the redemptive bit in the middle, where we see Bill at his prime, also at his 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 uh, his most where um, his faults show much more. But but that to me is imp- essential that people read that part of the
1: book. Well, one one of the astounding things about Bill is that he started out life with such a a drive to become a great artist. He did, He really did want to be. A a great artist. I mean, I'm quoting Astrid in the book, saying he wanted to be the 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 greatest artist in the world, Um, and I don't doubt that. You know, he was an extraordinarily ambitious uh, man all throughout his life. Um, You know, that ambition transposed onto cartoons later. But as a young man, art was everything. But the other thing about Bill, as you know, Nick, is he was extraordinarily articulate. So. You know, unlike most artists who don't place much importance on verbal communication, they generally, you know, leave it to whatever they can communicate on canvas. Bill pursued uh, verbal communication with as much passion. And he was, at, he was incredibly good at it. And one of the great gifts of the book, one of the great advantages of this book is that I was given access to hundreds and hundreds of letters. There's probably more than a thousand of them, in fact, that he wrote to his family, which his sister Lynn lovingly kept all these years later. And I was very, very graciously given access to them. And they're a treasure trove into the formation of this serious young artist and the ideas that he arrived at in his early 20s. And it's just, it's just, they were just a joy to read, mate, because, you know, I was reading them. These, these are letters that he wrote uh, almost 20 years before I met him and I was reading them and I could hear his voice. He's, he, he didn't change much. His principles did not change much throughout his life, which is what made him such a force of nature.
0: Fred, you say this book is a tribute to his strength and is my own humble attempt to prove that the accusations made against him in the final years of his life not only false, they were the very opposite of the man I knew and loved. You've achieved that in this book, Fred, congratulations, but more than that, I think you've done us a great service by putting on the record uh, the life of this great man who uh, I think we should remember for all times, a great Australian, a great contributor uh, to culture to australian uh, life and uh, a great presence in the lives of his many friends so thank you for doing that fred
1: oh thanks mate and thanks for having me in and, uh, and 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 th- you know as as much as i do how important uh, bill was to you know the country that australia became and um, and you know he he had, he adored us and uh, we loved him back for it he was a great man we miss him a lot
0: Mm. And there's many people to thank, of course, as you do in, in the book. But uh, special mention, I think, to John Roskam and the team at the IPA who, who backed you on this, who've published the book, uh, and uh, you can buy the book from them. We'll put a link to that at the bottom in the notes at the bottom of the podcast uh, and in the uh, YouTube video that accompanies this. Or you can go on a website and find the notes there or just click on the IPA's website, I guess. But uh, whatever you do get a copy of this book it's a very important one fred thanks once again thanks mate you've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the menzies research center we'd like to bring you many more of course and you can help us by subscribing from just ten dollars a month go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe i'm nick cater and thank you for listening